0: Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. This is episode 69 and we're the Nelsons. I'm
1: Lynette. And I'm Sean. In this episode, we interview Candice Kale and she is a first mother who is from Alaska and she, in this episode, has a great conversation with Lynette that exposes a lot of the really raw emotions of being a first parent. And uh, I... Really enjoyed listening to her perspective and point of view. And I think toward the end of the episode, she points this out. And I think it's something that we've really tried to do in this sphere. But we love highlighting different aspects of the adoption constellation. And I'm glad that we get to add Candace's voice to this episode and to um, our perspectives.
0: Yeah, this is a really raw and emotional discussion and conversation and Candace is so vulnerable and open sharing some really challenging things which I really appreciate her sharing with us letting us learn with her and from her you will feel so enriched and that you'll be able to come away with a deeper understanding and I think some really great thoughts on how we can make things better
1: yeah so here's our conversation with Candace Kale
0: We are here on the podcast with Candace. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To start off, can you tell us a bit about who you are?
2: Yes. So, my name is Candace Kale. I currently live in Denali, Alaska, so very remote Alaska. I'm originally from Minnesota and uh, I work as a national park ranger in the summer months. Uh, in the winter, I'm an artist and I do everything from writing, music, silversmithing. Um, I, it's, it's really my passion is art. Um, and, uh, the national park just allows me to do my art in the winter. So, yeah.
0: Oh, that's neat. It's beautiful up in Alaska. We've been planning a trip and I hope we can make it to Denali. It looks oh, amazing. It is amazing. Oh, and
2: I should also say I am married, um, uh, been married for over 25 years now. Um, and, uh, no no other children yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: all right so can we go ahead and jump in and just hear your adoption story whatever you'd like to share
2: absolutely uh so i got pregnant when i was 20 um and ended up uh giving birth at at 21 um i was with my boyfriend at the time so i kind of went into it uh just assuming I would be a mom, um, whether he was there or not, but he was there. So I was like, oh, great. You know, (laughs) i would had plenty of people in my family, uh, both close family and extended family who had gotten pregnant when they were younger than me, even, you know, 16, 17, 18. and, And they kept their children and the boyfriends all left. So I figured, oh, you know, whether he's with me or not, I'll be fine what ended up happening is about uh, almost five months along um, my boyfriend was like, you know, we should go to counseling and try to figure out all this, you know, and, and, but the way that he presented it was, was like, we're going to go to get parenting counseling to learn how to do this together. You know, not that we were going to get married or anything, but we were just going to figure it out. That's, that was what I understood. Um, but when we got there, it was actually an adoption agency. And I felt Uh tricked um and but at the same time the the person that we ended up seeing um was wonderful and she was her immediately I felt comfortable with her she was kind she was compassionate um and really ended up filling a mother role for me which I didn't really have right um so so I ended up continuing to see her even though we ended up, my boyfriend and I ended up breaking up. I continued to see her because what she presented was we're going to do some counseling that will let you um, like uh, decision-making counseling. So okay. we're going to go through some things about what parenting would look like and, and, and just get a sense. Right. Which was great. Right. Um, so, you know, going through budgeting, um, figuring out, you know, how would you get to work? How, you know, where would I live? I mean, all of those things. And it was very helpful, but at the same time um part of the the process was learning the way that they presented it was we're going to go through your family history and take a look at at you know what your family has been like and you know so so it was things like looking at history of alcoholism drug abuse neglect violence all of those things in your family so that you can see what the patterns are right so you know what kind of what typically you expect because what they're saying is that, you know, these are the patterns in your life. You can see them. We go back, we went back generations, generations. And you could see all of these patterns that had happened generation after generation in my family. And um and rather than presenting it like, okay, now we learn this and we can learn the skills to not repeat. Yes.
0: That was not
2: how it was presented. It was like I was destined to repeat these same things. Mm-hmm. And and it what it ended up doing is just made me feel feel worse about myself. I already had pretty low self-esteem as it was. And, and uh, so it was valuable, but it was also not a good thing in that sense. Um, But what ended up happening was, um, I mean, there were lots of things, but essentially it came down to, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I didn't think that I was, I would have what I needed. I, I was poor. I didn't have an education. I didn't have any support, you know, none of those things. And and because they didn't present it like I could learn, but then we're on the heels of that said, but we have so many families that would be perfect. We have we have couples that are ideal in every way and they're ready. They're, you know, so and and then you can pick them. Right. So I was forceful I mean. Yes. Yeah, yes, wow, wow. Yes. Um, but the fact that they would let me pick them made a huge difference because now I could look for somebody completely opposite from what I had. Right. Um, and it, and it gave me the way that I describe it often is it gave me a sense of control and what I felt was an uncontrollable situation. So I latched onto that. Um, and, and, and the family that I ended up picking both my ex-boyfriend and I chose together. That was actually the very last time I ever saw him. I haven't seen him since, um, was the day we selected the, the parents. Um, and, uh, Got to meet them one time after uh, Michael. That's our son. Michael was placed with them, um, and then would get updates once a year. So that was another thing, like that they would give me letters and pictures once a year to let me know that he was okay. I couldn't, I couldn't contact them person. I had to go through the agency, but it was like, okay, I've given them all the list of things that I want and then they will keep me updated, and I will know that he's okay, right? So that was really important that those updates were going to be coming. And that was every year, that was the thing that I looked forward to is being able to get th- those updates on his birthday. Um, but then they stopped. And um, when he was eight, and I, you know, actually, they, they came late on when he was six. And I went called the agency, It was like, you know, you need to check in and and they did. So it got a couple of months late. And then the next one also came late. And when he was eight, I I went to the agency, went there in person. I'm like, you guys need to figure this out. And they're like, oh no, 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 you signed away your rights long ago. And this is not, it's not a legal, legally binding thing. So we can't do anything. Um, And I was devastated because I had no recourse whatsoever. Um, So fast forward to, two days before his 18th birthday, we got a letter in the mail through the agency from the adoptive family. And that was when we discovered that his adoptive mom had passed away when he was 10. Um, and that was a big reason why communication had ended. She had been very ill for many years. And, um, but the connection was remade. So we reunited and over the phone, we talked over the phone, um, did intermittent texting and, and emails for a couple of years. And then he asked to meet me in person. So we went down to Minnesota and met him. Uh, had one beautiful day together. Uh, and then again, went back to kind of intermittent contact. I gave him all the control for contact because I was advised that that was what you need to do. Um, and, um, but then he passed away in his sleep before we had ever had a chance to meet again. Um, so I feel like, in terms of my story when it comes to adoption and relinquishment is I had really blocked it all out after the adoption because I couldn't deal with the grief. Losing him a second time brought all of that back on top of the new grief. So it's been almost 10 years now since he passed away. And I just now finally feel like I'm coming out of it. Yeah.
0: So hard, wow. Can we go back a little bit? Absolutely. So when you went to the adoption agency for the counseling, you were not thinking adoption at all. You were planning on parenting and they essentially talked you out of that.
2: And then- That and pressure from the ex-boyfriend and pressure from his family, all of those, there were were a lot of coercive elements and manipulative things going on, not just there, elsewhere as well, yeah.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had anyone who was supporting you and helping you feel like you could do this, you could parent if that was what you chose? No. No,
2: no, there wasn't anybody, no and I didn't, I didn't seek anybody out either. I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I thought how that saying is and, and yeah. Yeah. You
0: have a pretty good relationship now with Michael's adoptive father and stepmother. Yes. 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 Okay.
2: I do. We have a beautiful relationship and, um, you know, he, he was when I was choosing, um, his letter was what made me choose them the agency was gatekeepers so they were they gave me who they thought I should have so they gave me four files essentially and and but I read through them all but his letter was the only one that was handwritten um and that made a difference to me as a writer as someone who who likes it's more personal it's more intimate and um Uh, so he was a big reason why I chose them because he was very in touch with his emotions, his ability to communicate, to talk about them, that it wasn't, you know, when we met in person, you know, we both cried or we all cried and he wasn't ashamed of it, you know, and his, his, the older son, John, who's also adopted came to that meeting. Um, Michael did not come because we figured it would be too hard. Um, but John came, John was four. And one of the most significant memories from that day is, you know, we were all talking and crying, and you know, <laughs> one of the most awkward kinds of situations you can ever imagine. But John was coloring on the floor, and suddenly he, he perked up and he said, "You know, my dad cries all the time, and they're tears of joy," is what he says. And and I'm just like, wow. Okay, that's. It was just very impactful for me. Um, so when when Michael died, um, and we got the call from David. You know, he was immediately like, yeah, you need to be here, you know, because I was like, I have to come. And he's like, yes, you need to be here. And when I got there, him and everybody else in the family completely opened arms for us um, and being there. And, and every person that we met um, that they introduced us to, uh, I was introduced as his mom, as Michael's mom. And I had never experienced that. Um, and it was a profound shift for me um you know claiming that part of my identity too late
0: a hard beautiful so many emotions as i hear you talk
2: it's yeah and and like with david and and the family you know writing my book you know when i told them that i was gonna i wanted to write my story completely supportive in every single way gave i gave them the opportunity would you want me to change names or hide identity they're like absolutely not um, you know, so just completely in in my corner, um, the family. <laughs> they had a group of like fifteen that came up to Alaska a few years ago and spent spent some time up here, and and we've spent you know weekends at each other's homes, and you know for us it's or at least for me, David and the whole family contain everything that remains of Michael. They have everything that that's left. Um, they're my connection, uh, and I and I'm pretty sure when I show up at their door and sit at their table, they see Michael. He looked just like me, you know? So it's, it's our connection and Michael brought us together and it will keep us together. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Wow. Um, I don't think we've talked about your book yet. You mentioned it just a moment ago. So I thought maybe we could have you talk about.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, So the book is titled goodbye again. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's really just, my my story of Michael in my life so it actually begins the first day essentially that we go to that the to the counselor um and to takes me through all the way through his life and and just dealing with how did I come to that decision how did I get there um it because it wasn't just you know, in terms of the agency, when I talk about some of the coercion and manipulation there, yes, that was there, but it was also my choice. I did make this choice. How did I make that choice, right? How does someone choose to relinquish their rights over their child? Um, It's a really difficult uh, thing to try to explain to people. So the best way for me to do it was to write it as if the reader is in my shoes. Um, So it goes to that, it goes through dealing with, you know, the reading the the updates and looking at the pictures, and then they're suddenly being gone. And how do you now? How do I now survive that? Um, you know, but each of these stages of having Michael in my life, having him taken away, bringing him back, having him taken away—you know—that ebb and flow, and how I survived it because it—it it hasn't been easy. It's really the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. Um, and then you know, it's the the book itself is about child loss, all types of child loss. It's about motherhood, how we define motherhood, um, how motherhood showed up in my life. And and there are many people that I've talked to that have read the books, they say we connect to so many parts of that. You know, my relationship with my mother, my relationship with Michael's mother, my, you know, all of those things, right? Um, but in the end, probably the the biggest thing the book is really about is how two things can be true at one time that placing Michael for adoption was the hardest thing I ever did. Hardest decision I ever made. Um, I have regrets about it, but it was also a wise choice at the time because I don't know that I would have survived it. I don't know that he would have survived it. Um, you know, Michael's death, he, it's like tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Um, But what I've gained through my relationship with with his family is absolutely beautiful. It's sublime. Um, And I'm really, really fortunate to have that
0: adoption. So complicated. There's (laughs) so much juxtaposition where it's insane how much exists in one space, right? Beautiful and traumatic and hard and just all jumbled together. I would love to hear what your thoughts are regarding that adoption is beautiful narrative.
2: Yeah. I, that, that's been like the hardest, um, thing for me, uh, because, you know, when I, when I was going through counseling, you know, that was what they were saying. Adoption is this beautiful, wonderful choice and, you know, everything is, is going to be perfect. The family will be perfect. Um, and you know, so so I and I absolutely bought into it. I absolutely bought into it Be- because you know, coming from you know the poverty and the the abusive background that I came from, because I had a lot of bad things in my my childhood. Um, they yeah, that looked perfect. It looked like the perfect solution, right? And but what when all was said and done, the the grief I felt, the sorrow I felt. Um, I didn't feel acknowledged in that at all. I didn't feel like I could talk about it to anybody. Um, you know, if 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 somebody found out that that I had you know relinquished or placed you know I mean language and terminology is really important, right? And one of the ways they turn it into this beautiful and wonderful thing is I placed my baby for adoption, right? I didn't give him away. I didn't relinquish him. I placed him, right? Um, and that's a very specific tool that's used to coerce people in my opinion, but you know, that if I said something, the fact that somebody would say, oh, that's so brave and you're so strong and, and so selfless and all of these things, I didn't feel any of those things. Right? So there was this cognitive dissonance that was going on and I didn't know how to deal with that and I wasn't given the tools to. So it was, yeah, that that is such a difficult thing. Um, how do I basically, it prevented me from talking about it because yeah. I didn't feel that it was beautiful, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you
0: get any kind of counseling after placement after Michael was born?
2: So so the agency offered um, some counseling for the first year. Okay. Um, I didn't really take them up on it. Um, and then it all just vanished basically I wasn't offered after that. Wow no no and and i i imagine had i gone to them and asked they might have but i didn't know to ask i didn't you know and again i was really focusing on disassociating from it i I didn't i didn't want to deal with it the only time i let myself really um think about it and be enmeshed in it was when the updates came yeah yeah
0: so how do you feel like others could be more supportive of these first parents and maybe even help before these kinds of situations arise?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I think what's really, really important is we need to be, uh, well, we pretty much need to try to prevent them from becoming first parents. Yeah. You know, we need to give them those uh, resources, um, information and the support, um, you know, there's current research being done and there's a book being written by Gretchen Sisson that's going to be talking about how the majority of first mothers come to it not really out of choice but because they feel backed into a corner because they don't have support they don't have finances um, they have other children that they they already can't take care of I mean all of these things but they're choosing a permanent solution to really a temporary problem Yeah. And And I think that we, you know, we could be spending a lot more time, effort and and financial resources to helping um, young pregnant people earlier on in their situation and giving them the the resources and education. The other thing, too, that was really lacking was and because it wasn't really known back in my day. Um, But what was lacking was the recognition that adoption, that severance of the child from the mother is a lifelong trauma. And it's and and even though infants are pre-verbal, they are traumatized um, and it lasts their whole life. Right. Um, If I had known that. There's no way there's absolutely no way. Um, and that's where a lot of my regret and shame and guilt come from is what did I do? Um, because I was told again, it's beautiful. And, and they're a blank slate, you know, my son would be a blank slate, you know, get it, get them to the new family as soon as you can, so that they can imprint on them and all of that. And, and I believed it all, you know, and I think everybody did. I mean, I don't, I actually don't think that like my counselor, um, or really the agency necessarily itself, they weren't doing these things to be cruel. They weren't, they were, they thought it was also the, the wise choice, the smart thing to do, right? Mm, because no, they didn't, no, no. yeah. Yeah, because they did and they didn't have the education that they needed to understand um, that the lifelong impact that this will have. So yeah, so if we, can, if we can do more both about educating people about the lifelong impact of relinquishment on the children and on the first families, um, and, uh, and just basically a lot of more support, I think financial support, yeah. I
0: think those are both key, thank you. Mm-hmm. How do you think your experiences with Michael and with relinquishing him, how do you think that led you to where you are today?
2: Yeah, I think that that single decision um, at 21 years old has shaped everything that has come after Um, probably the biggest uh, impact is I would have children. I would both have Michael or have had Michael, um, but I probably would have had other children too. Um, The choice to not have any more children was a direct result of not wanting or not, not being unable to try to explain to Michael why one child, another child was good enough to keep. And he wasn't, I could never do that. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing, but everything else that has come after has been impacted by the fact that I am a first mother. Looking
0: back, I know it's impossible to really know this, but how do you think having an open adoption from the start might have changed your experience?
2: When I look back, um, and I, I have journals, I have a lot of things that I've used to, to really help me transport myself back to know what I was thinking and feeling at the time. When I look back, um, You know, getting the updates Mm -hmm. was paramount to how I felt. Now, even though I was still dissociating and, and really not dealing with things very well, had those updates continued, I think I would be in a much better place. I would have been in a much better place all the way through his childhood, just knowing that he was okay. Um, you know, having some communication between us would have been paramount because I still think that Michael, you know, his family were wonderful. He he had a wonderful family. He grew up in this amazing community with, with an amazing extended family. I mean, he pretty much did have everything that I wanted him to have. Um, So had I known it would have been a lot better. And I think that's, I think I can say that confidently as well because we have this great relationship now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel like your perspective is so unique and so valuable because you do have that relationship now where you didn't yeah. have it before. But, and, and it's of course so hard to know what it would have been like yeah. if you could have had that while he was young as well and just yeah. throughout his life. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I think you know one of the reasons, one of many reasons, but one of the big reasons that that I ended up choosing um, that family with you know David and them is they specifically laid it out that they would be talking about adoption. He would never not know he wasn't adopted. They he would he would they would share things about me with him. You know that it would even though we wouldn't be connected physically there would be an openness about his, who he is and his identity. And I think that um, that's key. And part of that, that open when I, and I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is when I talk about openness, I'm not talking about specifically physical openness. I'm talking about openness of mind and being willing to communicate and talk about it. Because I think that there's a lot of, or my experience is in meeting people, there are a lot of adoptive parents who are not comfortable even talking about adoption to their with their kids, and and I think that's so important. Um, I have yet to meet an adopted person, an adult adopted person, who hasn't at some point dealt with feelings of abandonment, um, and you know, dreaming or thinking about the ghost kingdom. You know what I mean when I say ghost kingdom? Yeah. Um, so every single one even if they have had the most perfect, beautiful, wonderful family, right? They still have those. And if they can't share that with their adoptive parents, they're, they're going to miss out on so much. The child's going to miss out, but so are the parents. Um, so the, the parents need to be comfortable. And basically what that means, they need to do the work. They need to have gone into it having done their work. Because I've, I've heard too many stories where like, let's say a child asks about their birth family. Just even just a random question. So, and but the adoptive parent, if they haven't done their work, they may feel threatened by that. They don't really have any reason to, but they feel threatened by it just by the child thinking about them. So their automatic response is, oh, but but we love you so much and and we chose you and you know, all of those things. But what that does is it makes the conversation about the adoptive parent, not about the child. And, and so they say they these things and then they don't, aren't able to acknowledge what the child is feeling and experiencing. And, and even though I think those responses are, they're well-meaning, they're not meant to be mean or anything, but it results in the child learning that the topic is off limits. It, mm-hmm. You don't want to make your parent uncomfortable. You don't want them to feel sad. You don't want you know all of that. And that's particularly true for adopted people because they've already been abandoned once and they're not going to take a chance that they'd be abandoned again because that's what it feels like to a kid and to adults too actually i know adults that feel the same way so yeah
0: oh. yeah yeah i agree 100% yeah. it's very well said so just one more question kind of on this thread of open adoption relationships and that openness since forming this relationship with david how has this kind of open adoption relationship affected your processing, your healing, or your trauma?
2: Yeah, I, I really don't think that I would be anywhere near as far along in my recovery yeah. um, without him. Um, you know, when, after Michael died, uh, my husband Tom complete, actually my, I'll talk about Tom probably a little later, but but he's super, like, the most supportive person I could have ever asked for, right? Um, but in the months after Michael passed, I just felt so lost. I just didn't. I didn't know how to to find help, and and you know, like I was going online, and I was trying. To, like I found Compassionate Friends, which is for parents who have lost children, and and they had some good resources, and 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 I could read some things, but it wasn't quite right, right? Because I'd get into these groups, like online or things, and people are like, "Well, tell us about him," and I didn't know anything. So, so suddenly now I'm grief stricken. So then I went to like first moms groups, and that helped a little bit, but it still wasn't quite right. Well, I ended up coming to a place where I was like, you know what? There's one person who knows exactly how I feel, and that's David. He has had a double loss as well. He lost his wife, and now he lost his child. I just happened to lose the same person twice, and we I sent sent an email to him. You know, it was probably I think two months after Michael died, and and just really was as vulnerable as I could be and just be like, I'm lost, I'm flailing, I don't know what to do. And he wrote right back and he says, I am exactly in the same place. And that was really when things blossomed. And we just back and forth, emails back and forth, back and forth, and just really giving each other the opportunity to vent, to express, to be sad, to not have to explain to anybody. Um, And we really just bloomed and blossomed after that. But yeah, I really believe that had David not been open to that communication I wouldn't be where I am right now for sure huh.
0: that vulnerability that's really yeah good.
2: Okay. yeah and and his he, again the openness that he had so like that I want to share this this little story when we when I went and met Michael for the first time that one day that we had together it was uh, Michael and I and his dad David and my husband Tom and we spent the whole day together and then we ended up going out to a restaurant. And we're sitting at this little restaurant and, and, and people are walking by and saying hi, right? And, and a person stopped and be like, hi, David, how are you? You know, and Michael's there and they're talking. And David immediately turns to me and he oh, this is Michael's mom. Like right away, that very first meeting. And I just about fell out of my chair because I'd never been so open. And he just automatically was. Um, and that has been the case from day one. And it has really made all the difference.
0: That's beautiful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of unethical and
0: questionable practices in adoption. I feel like we've talked about a fair amount. Yeah. What do you wish that potential adoptive parents would think about or know before considering adoption in light of those practices?
2: I you know, I think that the most important thing, and it and it I'm hoping it's becoming more common, but they need to realize that although adoption can be beautiful, it begins with trauma. It begins by severing a child from their, their family. Right. Um, The, they need, to understand, they need to get education about the long-term impacts of that. Um, you know, Studies have shown that adopted people are more likely to have suicidal thoughts, more likely to attempt suicide, higher incidence of mental health issues. They're more highly represented in mental health facilities, all of these things, right? And, and I, I hope there are more studies coming out soon because I feel like that's just an area that's really been missed. Um, so they need to know that going into it. And I think going into it, then you can prepare. You can, you can, you can, if you know that your child or children is going to be dealing with issues of abandonment, you can be prepared to look for the signs and be ready. Um, And and that's so incredibly valuable, but you can't get there if you don't have the education. If you're not, if you're not open to it or you're not given it. Um, And I think that's super important. Well said
0: what advice would you give to other first parents who are searching for their children or hoping to be searched for?
2: Yeah. You know, it's so, so hard. I think that the searching, I, you know, I am fortunate. I didn't have to search. He found me right away. He he wanted to find me right away. Um, so I, I, I don't really have great insights into while they're searching. What I can say though is the number one, most important thing if they do reconnect is to let that adopted person Lead the way. Let them make the decisions about how the relationship is going to develop. How I mean, all of it. They they need to have that um, control over it because they need. We need to remember that they didn't have choice. And even if we were coerced, even if we were in a position as the as the first parent where we didn't feel like we had a choice, we're still the adult. We still, yeah, there's still responsibility that falls on our shoulders. So we need to let the adoptee take complete control over all of it and be as open as we can. And it's the, that's the hardest thing to to do in my opinion. Yeah. Well said. What advice would you
0: give to other first parents or others in the community who are processing trauma and loss?
2: Therapy, (laughs) Um, find a, find a good therapist, Um, adoption competent, a therapist for first parents, relinquishment competent, because there's a difference between adoption and relinquishment. Okay. So first parents need to have, um, adoption competent or relinquishment competent or trauma informed, because it technically is very, it's, it's a trauma. If they can't find someone or don't have the money to pay for, for, um, therapy, um, which is, cause it's really expensive. It's hard to find someone. Um, they need to join, um, a first parent support group. So basically find your tribe. Um, I know that the very first time that I got into a room with other first parents, um, it was the relief that I didn't have to explain anything. They knew exactly where I was coming from. There was no judgment there. I can't overemphasize how important it was to just be in a room with people that knew exactly what I had been through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of those you can find, they're free. You can find them online. Now you can find, you know, in in person and online and uh, yeah, there's, there's great, great um, groups out there right now for support.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Great advice.
2: And then you've also talked about your
0: husband a bit. I would love to hear more about how he has supported you.
2: So, so I, first of all, am super lucky to have um, such a great spouse. Um, So Tom and I've known each other since we were kids um, we knew each other, you know, in high school, uh, we were just friends back then. We didn't get together as a couple until we were 27, but he knew me when I was pregnant. And it, actually he's the only person who felt my tummy when I was about well, outside of family because I was pretty much alone. <laughs> um, but he, he saw me when I was eight months pregnant When he came over and visited, um, we hadn't seen each other in over a year. He was shocked that I was pregnant, um, and, but he came over and he sat with me and I, I basically filled him in on what was happening and, and what I was going to do. And, and he held my hand and just let me cry and didn't judge me, didn't demand anything, didn't try to make it better, didn't try to fix it. Um, and then when we got together, it was six years after Michael was born. You know, he already knew the history, which was helpful. But... I remember the first Michael's first birthday when we were together, I, about two weeks ahead of time, I said, um, Michael's birthday is coming up and it's going to be hard. it's always hard. And I just need you to know that it's, I'm not going to be very present essentially. And he turned to me, it's like, Oh, what should we do to celebrate? And I'm like, I don't celebrate this. This is not a celebratory thing. He's like, yes, it is. You gave birth. You have a son. It's his birthday. And so he took me out to dinner. And from that initial moment, first of all, he tried to form it in a way that I could find some beauty in it for myself. That um, To try to find my sense of being, you know, I may not be a parent, but I'm still a mother, right? And he tried tried to point that out to me. Um, but since then, every single birthday, anniversary, Christmas, Mother's Day, all those, Tom about two weeks ahead of time, it's like, how are you doing? How's this year? What would you like to do this year? Do you need time alone? Do you need a hot bubble bath? Do you want to go out to dinner? You know, and just giving me the opportunity to think about it ahead of time helped me prepare and gave me permission to prepare. And so I think that's one of the number one things anybody who is supporting someone can do is be present. You don't have to try to fix it and then just help the person find their own answers. Yeah. but Tom has been amazing. And when, when Michael died, he was right by my side and, and, uh, has just supported me so so much. For the, anybody who reads the book, you you will get a very good sense of Tom. And I've I've had a couple of people, well, yeah, more than a couple, I've had a bunch of people that they'll write me and it's like Tom can't be that good. He can't be that nice. Can't you know? And I'm like, when it comes to Michael, he is. He has just been a stellar um, person. Sometimes he can be not a nice guy, and we certainly still fight. But when it comes to Michael, he is. Yeah, he's been the best support person I could have ever asked for. That is
0: amazing. Yeah.
2: Great advice too. I love
0: that. So be present yeah. and help. Just be there to help as you work through. Yeah. yeah. Bounce off ideas is a great way. Yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Um, Do you have any other thoughts on ways that others can support first parents or others through traumas and struggles?
2: Uh, You know, I think that th- there's... What I've done is, I think, somewhat unconventional in that because, well, partly because I live in remote Alaska, I don't have access to, um, you know, in-person therapy. I don't, you know, a lot of those things and, and Zoom therapist is fairly new, right? Um, so I really used a, a lot of more unconventional ways um, and learning to do things on my own. Yeah, I, I wish I had better things to offer. Yeah. I think that was great advice. All right. What do you feel like some of the biggest
0: challenges the adoption community faces are?
2: Okay. Challenges. Uh, So (laughs) I think that it's actually hard to narrow down for me, but, but there are, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that are, that come up for me. Um, I think some of the biggest ones um, I was trying to narrow it down because you gave me the question ahead of time. I think ethics, money and secrecy. Um, So In talking about those things um, when it comes to ethics, and this is specifically when we're talking about first parents. So I think there needs to be a requirement for comprehensive education regarding the impact of relinquishment on the relinquishing parents and the child. I think there needs to be a nationwide laws to prevent flying pregnant parents to adoption friendly states. Um, I think there needs to be implementation of a standard waiting period um, before parental rights can be terminated. I I'm actually, I'm horrified that in some States um, people who have just given birth sign away their rights, like 48 hours. It I just, no, that should not be allowed. Um, and then there's a whole bunch more, but those are kind of the real specific things there wow. um, when it, in terms of, of, as it pertain to adopted people, I think there needs to be legal recognition of their human rights and civil rights um, for all adult adopted people. I personally advocate for opening all government documents as they pertain to, you know, adoptees historical, genetic, legal identity, all of that, um, including an unaltered birth certificate. So one of the things that happens in adoption in the U.S., in order for the adoption to happen, they lose their identity the person, you know, that original birth certificate is sealed up and tucked away, never to be seen again. And a new, altered, and what some people just say false, birth certificate is issued. Um, That's, you know, that's taking away somebody's identity. And I don't think that should be happening. Um, I think in general, of course, money is a huge problem. Adoption's a multi-billion dollar industry in the US. Um, I think we could make it a requirement that any information about fees paid or to be paid should be available to all parties ahead of time, including the fir- birth family. You know, um, I think that needs again uh, transparency. There needs to be transparency. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I think another big one is educating adoption professionals. Um, we need to implement balanced, trauma-informed educational resources. Um, for people that are working um, in adoption, and it needs to happen at the collegiate level, like in the social work programs, in the psychology programs, but it also means that it can be also implemented through continuing education for people that are already out in the field. Um, and then probably the number one most important thing we need to listen to adopted people; um, their lived experiences should be guiding everything that we're doing to create change in adoption. Yeah.
0: That was incredibly well said. Oh my goodness. Thank you. You're welcome. That was a great list. I can tell that you are very informed and that you've been researching.
2: And, and, and I, just so you know, I am planning to use my story, my memoir as a case study and mm-hmm. how things did work well and how they didn't work well and Hi. how, how we can, how we can learn lessons um, and, and find ways to educate people about Openness and adoption about ethics, all of those things.
0: Yeah, really important.
2: Wow, that's incredible.
0: That was fantastic. I don't even feel like <laughs> asking <any> follow up <laughs> questions. That was so good. All right. Do you feel like you want to talk at all about how perceptions have shifted over time?
2: Um. So I know it's like for me, I'll, I'll just address. I think this briefly. Um, is, you know, for many adopted people and I think first parents, um, and perhaps this is true for adoptive parents, but I haven't talked to them about that specifically. Um, You could certainly share if if you have anything, but the the, uh, terminology of coming out of the fog, right? Um, I was definitely in the fog for a very, very, very long time. And so in terms of my perception, a lot of that changed specifically by listening to adult adopted people. Um, But it was even more than that. my first experience being in a support group with mixed with people from the, all the constellation, right? So, so birth parents, adoptive parents and adopted people. Um, I sat in that room and they gave the adopted people first um, voice because again, they were the ones that never had a voice in all of this. And I sat there and every single person that shared um, I related to it. And then when I came out of that meeting, I was like, oh, my God. I'm adopted. I did not. I, I was adopted. <laughs> so I my mother um, divorced my my birth father when I was about two months old. She remarried right away and her second husband forced my birth father to relinquish his rights and a new birth certificate was issued and I didn't find out until I was about 13 years old now when I found out I was happy because my stepfather or my dad who I knew of as my dad had sexually abused me so when I found out he wasn't actually my real father I was ecstatic and I didn't really care who the other guy was. I was just glad that this guy wasn't, right? But it took until literally in my 40s for me to recognize that I had extreme feelings of abandonment. I mean, my father didn't protect me from this guy who sexually abused me. My father left me. He signed away his right. So I, all of those feelings that I remember having as a kid came flooding back. And I'm like, oh, my God, I did that to my son. It was horrible, um, but valuable because it really did help me come out of the fog. I hope that made sense. (laughs) Ah, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's heavy. That's a lot. It's It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, And, you know, just, yeah, reeling from trying to figure out all these connections and how important it is, um, again, how important it is to have honesty and openness. I mean, if I had known all along, I think it would have been different, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah. But yeah, my, I feel like I have done a major shift in my perceptions from, from even the time that Michael and I were first reunited until now, yeah.
0: Well, I really appreciate you
2: sharing all of these thoughts and experiences. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk with you. Um, I think that really your role as adoptive parent um, and what you're doing with this podcast is absolutely one of the most important things. You're reaching people um, who I can't reach without you, right? You, you, you have a connection um and you're sharing information that's going to be so valuable to to really creating better lives for everybody yeah thank you that is absolutely our goal and just like you've talked about
0: the importance of listening and transparency and just openness to learning more it's such a huge long process and i really appreciate you sharing and helping us to add another piece to that puzzle
2: thank you thank you so much
1: Wow what a great conversation with Candace Candace we're so grateful for you in sharing your story with us and especially helping us see from a different perspective I, I learned a lot as I I listened to your conversation it was great
0: one of my big takeaways from this discussion was when Candace talked about how we should be helping first parents before they become first parents I loved The way that she put that, and it's so important. I think it's something we do need to be talking about. How can we help avoid situations where trauma through adoption is going to happen? Right, like obviously we feel like we've been super blessed by adoption, but I don't know what our kids are going to feel as they grow up. But if we can create a society where we're supporting each other better and making the need for adoption less frequent. I think that's a great goal.
1: Yeah. I think something that really stood out to me as an adoptive parent uh, was around her conversation about talking about adoption with adoptees, especially as they're younger. She highlighted that she knows of some where adoptive parents just don't make that part of the conversation or it's not a safe conversation for children to to, Talk to their parents about. And for me, and I think for anyone who has adopted or is considering adoption, we need to be comfortable having really open conversations with our children about adoption. And especially as a parent, being okay when the feelings toward adoption aren't always positive because they won't always be. And we need to be okay having those conversations and being able to kind of check our ego at the door and help our kids have conversations that they need to have so that they feel whole and heard and can question things.
0: Yeah, I love that. Creating that safety. I think she said psychological safety, which is one of my favorite terms anyway. But yeah, we want to create that safe space, that psychological safety where our kids feel like they can really open up and share what they're feeling. We want that to be a safe thing for all adoptees.
1: Yeah, I have so many good takeaways that I'm walking away with with, from this episode, and I'm just really grateful to Candace.
0: Me too. I also did think it was so beautiful how she and Michael's adopted father built this really beautiful relationship after tragedy and through so much grief, but I did really think that was so poignant that they both had this tether to one another where they were able to fill some of that void. Obviously not like really feel it but to help and to grieve together i thought that was so beautiful
1: yeah and i think it just highlights the importance of connection in the adoptions world in the adoption space i agree and that
0: yeah we need each other in we, this community yeah
1: we need each other we can process trauma and um understand perspectives when we have each other
0: i think that's beautiful
1: Thanks so much again to Candace for sharing her story with us. And thanks to each of you for listening to the Open Adoption Project. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks.